0: Well, uh, today is a Scott Burns is going to preach with glasses day. Um, Here's why. Um, So our style at Cross City and our conviction, we believe that the Bible is God's word. And we teach straight through things. And it keeps us honest. It just keeps, like, I'm the guy who does most of the teaching here. And it keeps, like, Sundays from being a diet of things that matter a lot to Scott and may not matter a lot to you. Uh, we are God's people. We go to God's Word. We read God's Word. We believe it with all of our hearts. Old Testament and New Testament. We mostly live in the New Testament around here because that is the New Covenant. Some big reasons for that. Lunch, if you want to know more about that. Um, but we teach all the way through God's Word, and we've been going through the book of Romans. And uh, we are hitting some good stuff coming up here. All right? But here's the deal. If, if I've never met you before, and this is your first time here, you're kind of new to it, there's those times where you go over to someone's house to learn something. So in our f- in our family, the ladies of my wife and her sisters and heritage up the Hinton clan, um, they're particularly good cooks. They're really good cooks. And they cook w- weird things that are, like, way off the level with me. Like, I can cook a piece of meat or a quesadilla um, on that level, you know, basic. But every now and then, um, I tried to make a little meat dish a couple months ago that involved some like that witchery stuff you do with like celery and, and stuff like that where you make something, like a base, and it didn't go so hot. Um, and so uh, th- there's times where I've, I've seen people come over to our house and ask, Melissa, hey, can you teach me how to cook? And and they think, hey, they're thinking like meat or quesadilla level, right? But they enter in the kitchen on a day where we're talking about like recreating deeply authentic Indian dishes or something like that, right? And I mean, there are pots and pans all over the place. There's all kinds of ingredients, and it's kind of heavy duty. It can be kind of shocking when you come into heavy duty stuff. Uh, our passage today is that. Okay, so uh, if this is the first time in your introduction to Christianity or new to our church, um, these passages here in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Romans are deeper, richer things. They're very, very powerful things. But but here's the deal. As people of Jesus Christ, we have come to the conviction that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has way, truth, and life that we don't have. We aren't the way. We don't have the truth, right? And we're not the life in ourselves. So we go to him. And being accepted by him, we as his children sit down at his feet again and again and again. And we will into eternity sit down at the feet of Jesus and say, give me what I need. Teach me the way. Teach me the truth. And sometimes it's really simple. You're like, yeah, I kind of thought that before. And sometimes you look at that and go, that is opposite of everything that is has coursed through my veins. The problem is not what's in his veins. The problem is what's in our veins. And that's why he came. That's why he came. So that's our position as we go through any text. Um, no text is an unfortunate text. Some texts may be hard to understand. Some texts may have some things that are very difficult said in them. But they're all good texts. And our commitment is to never sit here and teach any text in an apologetic way. Like I know it's, it's, I know it's really unfortunate, but here's a little nugget of goodness. The entire thing is good. The entire thing is good, though. The entire thing at times may be hard. Our passage today, the entire thing is not hard but it's, I just want to gear us up as we go into it, okay? Um, it's a thinker. Um, maybe, maybe another way like this. Some passages, kind of like if you have a house, there's something really satisfying. Uh, some of you guys may not get this. Something satisfying about getting a nice new piece of furniture, like a couch. Like when you're married and the first time you don't use a secondhand couch, you get to pick out the pattern and the shape, and it's kind of cool, it's satisfying to put it in there. Um, but there's other days you do something in the house that isn't quite so immediately satisfying when you need to put the beam in a house right? That isn't so satisfying as rolling a couch in and sitting plopping on it because it's all cushy and soft, but man, you need the beam in the house. The beam is what keeps the roof from crushing you and your children, and we need the beam. These passages here, Romans 9, another way to look at it, are beam passages. They are the structure on which so many things are built, and so God in his kindness is coming to us, and he's saying, let's put on our, let's put on our mud boots, let's get ready, we're going to follow arguments and statements through these chapters here that are going to really help us lay foundation for the beam work of the gospel house that God teaches us, if that makes sense, all right? So with that said, also, I have to read a lot more than I usually read because I want to be precise as we go through here, and I also don't want to be here till 2 in the afternoon. So I would encourage you, number one, make sure you have a Bible up in front of you on your phone, or you can run back in the back. There's no shame. We have a stack of, of Bibles back there with Incredibly small print, that's hard to read. um, Or lean vigorously over your neighbor's shoulder, okay? So like, uh, we're gonna go back and forth in the text, back and forth in the text, and really want you to be in that text. And with that said, let me just pray as we enter it, okay? So Father, we come to you and we uh, sit at your feet. We want your truth. We want to understand the way things are. Particularly, Lord, we want to understand what you are saying and what you say is important for us to know as your children. So, Lord, please give us um, malleable hearts. Let your Spirit stir in us so we take your word and your word is believed deeply in our hearts. Help us understand these things correctly. Father, please be with me that I would speak clearly and correctly and truly to your text. We love you and we ask you for your help and we look forward to your help today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, last, last ridiculous analogy I'll give you for a moment is if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you're trying to understand him, You are coming to a a passage that is some really background stuff. It's very powerful, it's very important. But it may be hard for you to digest, but it's all true. And you'll be able to understand it. I fully believe you'll be able to understand it. But this is really God coming to his children and telling them about the way things work. So you may or may not find it immediately applicable to what was bothering you this morning, but this is the power and the heart of our God that we sit and worship underneath. We are in the book of Romans and because we are in Romans and we had been there for a long time but we haven't been there for a while, I need to give you a brief brief catch up, okay? Romans was a letter written to some people who lived in Rome by a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul was an official emissary of Jesus who was a super highly trained Jewish theologian under the primo guy named Gamaliel. But God saves Saul, is his original name, changes his name to Paul and commissions Paul, who you would think would be the apostle to the Jewish people, because he's all Jewish, he's smart, because he's a, he's a scholar, actually commissions him to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, all over the world, and God sends him out on these missionary trips where he's establishing the gospel and bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. And he's in a different spot of the Mediterranean right now, but he's writing a letter to the people of Rome, and he's never been there before. But he's heard that these people in Rome, who are predominantly not Jewish people because they are Roman, see what we're doing there, right? So they're Roman people. This message of the Jewish Messiah has come to them. In the years it's come to them, there's been some stuff, political stuff happening in Rome where the Jews have been kicked out of Rome. So Rome's been largely Jewish-less for a couple of years, but there's always influences coming to the ears of the Roman b- b- believers. And they're very good questions because they understand that the Messiah is Jewish, and that he came out of this Old Testament thing, and that seems to be there's, like a, there's a right that the Jewish people would own him. They have a franchise on the information. So it's a really good question, and that happens for two reasons. All over the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, as the gospel is going out of Jerusalem, There are two things happening. There are people who are Jewish by nationality who are not authentic followers of Judaism. They don't actually believe Moses. And they are the number one persecutors in the New Testament, by far. They are listening to where Paul's going and they're coming in, they're traveling, they're getting on their donkeys, running across, they're rallying up people. And almost every time that Paul takes a beating or a sticking or a whipping, It's because the non-believing Jewish people have come in and rallied people up to attack him. And so phase number one, you have non-believing Jewish opposition to the gospel itself. And phase number two are people from the, they call it the Judaizers, who would say they hold to Jesus, but they say that actually Jesus belongs to Judaism. And so they are kind of like a parasite coming in behind Paul. Paul leaves town and they're like sitting on the hills with the binos. And as soon as Paul leaves town, they come on in. And they're like, hey, we're like Paul part two. And this is some stuff didn't, Paul didn't tell you about that. But let's talk about that circumcision thing. Let's start off with that, right? And they would unfold all these trappings of Judaism and say, if you're going to be a good follower of Jesus, you've got to be Jewish. You've got to become a Jewish person. And They call it the era of the Judaizers. And the Spirit of God, through Paul, did not take kindly to that because they were twisting and perverting the gospel. This stuff is hitting Rome, and so Paul's writing a whole letter to them. And the whole theme of the book of Romans, all sixteen chapters, is kind of is going along that theme of Paul saying, "Yes, Jesus is the Jew, Jewish Messiah, but the Jewish Messiah has come to all of the world, both Gentiles and Jews, and everything he teaches breaks off of that and expounds of that." Okay, we've just gone through Romans nine, Romans nine, sorry, 8, Romans eight is this amazing chapter about God's love. Um, If you weren't there for it, I really encourage you to go back and watch the sermons on it. Um, Romans eight is just an amazing, amazing chapter, and then there is a turn in Romans chapter nine, verse one, where Paul turns and goes back into his major argument about Judaism. What do you do with it? So, since it's a dominant thought in their mind, he keeps lacing himself back into it. And so, I want to follow along with, have you guys follow along with me? We already preached this portion, but I want to read it because the argument comes out of it. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul says his heart is broken over the hard-heartedness of his fellow Israelites Jews who rejected Jesus as God. Because as a whole, the nation has said, we don't like Jesus They killed him, and they continue to kill his legacy. Verse, uh, our next verse. They are Israelites, and to them, they really do belong, and to them, and really does belong, the adoption of God, the glory of God, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarch, means the fathers. And from their race, according to flesh, genetically, biologically, is the Christ, who is God over all, Blessed forever, Amen. So in here he says, because I'm a Jewish guy and my heart actually breaks over the condition of our Jewish people. I'm full of anguish and grief, very, very powerful language that Paul, I would say Paul never used that language anywhere in parallel in the New Testament, a grief type language like this over the state of his, of his biological people. And in that he states that Jesus Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. So that's the, that's the entry level of where he gets into um, our words coming into verse 6. In other words, the gospel really does belong to the Jewish people, Israel. But they don't want it. So what's wrong? Did God's plan and God's word prove to be wrong? Let's look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God had a specific intention to his words. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Because... If, as we learned in prior weeks, what God's word does not, if his word does not return to him void, as we learned two weeks ago, what happened to this covenant people? If God and his word is making a people that belong to him, what happened if the people don't want him? Has God's word failed? And he's now going to take us down a path to show how God's word has not failed. Uh, my first point today is this. Biology does not determine God's children. Biology does not determine God's children. Who actually are God's people? Uh, the children of Abraham, the children of God in the following passage. So what's going to lay ahead of us here is an argumentation with a lot of different terms. And I'm going to say a few things. My hope is I want you to be able to see the flow of the argument because when you see the flow of the argument, you should then see where the meaning of the passage comes from. I'm going to be preaching out of the ESV. Some of you guys might be rolling a different version. We'll be able to navigate this just dandily, all right? So in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, national Israel, belong to Israel, the true Israel, or another way to say it, verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, or his biological offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, biological descendants, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, and are counted as offspring, literally declared as offspring. So with this said, let me, let me give you guys a, a brief history on on what's happening with these names, because you may not be very, very fresh with these names, and that would be totally fine, okay? So God makes the world, puts Adam in it. world falls apart, Nope, flood, right? Then we have Noah. And then fast forward past Noah time, God shows up and talks to a man named Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I will make a nation out of you. I will make a nation out of you. And then, that God says that Isaac, the son of Abraham, furthermore would be the specific lineage through which Abraham's uh, family nation would come. So we have an Abrahamic covenant, it's a promise from God to Abraham, and this passed through to, Isa- to Isaiah. And then it's passed through further, God later says that Isaac's son, Jacob, will be the namesake of Abraham's and Isaac's family. So not only will it be Abraham's, but it's specifically down the lineage of Isaac, and then specifically down the lineage of of Jacob. It will be the na- he will be the namesake and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's where we get the name Israel from. Him being the patriarch and namesake of his own nation of Israel. And there we have the introduction and the origin of the nation of Israel. Comes from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob. So when we have these arguments up here in our first text up here in in verse seven, six, seven, and eight. 6 7 8 about children of Abraham, children of God, what is being said is God has been telling him people, has been telling humanity that God has children. And he refers to them as the children of Abraham because it's going to be happening through Abraham. So you have children of Abraham, children of God, those are synonymous. The players in it are Abraham, his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. And then we'll talk about their wives in one second. So here clearly we see that God has two people in mind when He says Israel. Not all of Israel were of Israel. One of them was the nation Israel. One of them are His true people, the true Israel. So, let me uh, let me make one more run at verse seven because I think uh, I just want you to be able to see the argumentation of it. And, and by the way, uh, when you try to read the Bible, um, two things might be really helpful. Number one, it is helpful to have more than one translation around with you. Old Testament was written in what? Good, and another language, but mostly Hebrew. And then this New Testament was written in? Okay, so those are foreign languages to us. Uh, how many people here have studied another language? All right, we have this little problem called word order, right? We're like, um, let's just say in California, where I'm from, we have this great restaurant called El Pollo Loco. Now, in my mother tongue, we call that the crazy chicken. But in the Spanish tongue, we call that the chicken that is crazy. Right, and we have word order, things like that. So when we're speaking in Greek and in Hebrew, we got word order issues. So you can't just simply translate one word to the other and stick it in the order, we would never be able to understand it. They'd be really quick, and especially because in those languages, a lot of times they have the habit of importing emphatic words from deep in the middle or the end of a sentence to the beginning because they want to grab you right there, like none, right? So there's all kinds of challenges in translating. So we have English translations and English translations are great and they are the word of God just as the Greek translation that Jesus used of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, he considered a great translation and the word of God and used it and preached from it authoritatively. So, translations are really good things. It might be helpful for you to have more than one translation. When I was in high school, I was a dork, but I rolled with a, um, a parallel Bible. I just got all excited about it, and it was a big fat thing. I stole it from my dad, and it had the King James, had an NIV, had something else, and then it had this amplified version that was like double the length of everything else. And so it was helpful for me when I would read things to go like, um, I just read a different version of it, and you can start to see where there are some words that are challenges to uh, understand. And so um, that's a helpful thing. It may be helpful for you to own that or look online because they're free out there. But it's good to have a couple different translations sometimes when you're trying to understand something. But number two, when you're using different translations, follow arguments. Follow Arguments. The Bible's not understood by necessarily small little phrases. It's written in arguments. The whole book of Romans is an argument, and we use back and forth the same thing. In this text today here, there's an argument that flows, and if you're not watching out for it, you'll step right over it and kind of miss some of the major stuff happening. So, for instance, let's look at verse 7 and learn from this. And he says, verse 7 is an explanation of verse 6. Not not all Israel was of Israel, right? And he goes, For instance, seven, not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here's why you may not be really locked into that. Um, Because when you read that naturally, and I would say naturally as I'm reading out the ESV right here, the point is not made. It says, and not all children of Abraham not, are all chil- not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So verse part A of this verse means children of Abraham isn't a biological issue. Okay, Not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. So just because they have a little bit of the gene pool, like they have the eyebrows of Abraham, doesn't mean that they are his, truly Abraham's children. The second part of this verse is supposed to support that, the but. But when you read this in ESV, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, it almost doubles down, sounds like it doubles down on, actually, it will be your genetic children. The answer of that being, um, and if you read reading NIV today, NIV wins on this little case here. The last word there, your offspring shall be named, or as the NIV puts it, reckoned, is a Greek word called kaleo. It has two terms all the time re- referenced. Uh, one means it's identification source, like I will be called Scott of Burns, because I am Scott Burns. So in some sense, my Leo is Burns. Uh, It is is the familial name by which you're identified. The other, which is more common and is used in verse 11, is it is a summoning. The calling is a summoning. It's not an identification factor. So it's one of those two in this passage here. ESV, they lean towards that, but I think that that really helps us not understand the argument of it. The argument of it is the second half of seven proves the first half of it. The second half of seven is this that through Isaac your, your offspring shall be called, summoned, right? Anybody who's going to be a true child of Abraham is summoned through this work that God has put through Abraham, through Isaac, eventually through Jacob. You're called through that lineage. So I, 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 don't, want, I don't mean to geek out on you two all. I just want to call you to reading the Bible with sensibility. Not saying, hey, well, let's discount what it says by our senses. But like read, read it like, a, like it's written by somebody, like someone's actually making an argument. And when the argument doesn't make sense, slow it down, get in a second cup of coffee, sit there, pray your heart out and say, well, Lord, let me get this. Let me get what this argument is. And if you need help, you can call us, you can pull up a couple of smart books, resources we can point you towards. But watch for arguments. Until every statement fits in the argument well, you don't know the passage. And you may be really missing out on something sweet. So we see in verse seven, that not all are are children of of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God made a clan of people called Israel, and that group as a whole was his people, his nation, but it was made up of both people who believed him and many, many, many who did not believe him. Um, Yet they identified with him with some kind of lip service or they just loved his nationality, like Jew. I love it. But their heart really wasn't there. And just because you were a Jewish person doesn't mean that you were or are an authentic person of biblical Jewish faith. Jesus made this clear. You to trust him, not me, on this. In John 5, 46 and 47, Jesus says to this, Jesus, by the way, he's a Jewish person, saying to Jewish people, Jewish leaders, for if you believe Moses, that's the Old Testament, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Jesus says if you actually believe the Old Testament, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is so hot dog in this conversation. It's amazing. Just like standing there like, Moses wrote of me. I mean, no wonder these guys who don't love him are trying to stone him. Are you kidding me? You're telling me that all this in the Old Testament is pointing? He goes, exactly. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, <laughs> so catch this statement. And this is where we love to sit at the Jesus. If a person does not believe Christ, then they do not authentically believe Moses, authentically from the heart. And number two, if you won't believe the Old Testament, then you won't believe Christ either. We love the Old Testament. We believe every single thing the Old Testament says, and we interpret it through the commentary called the New Testament, which unfolds it, enlightens it. So we hold to this. We believe Moses. If you don't believe Moses, you don't believe Jesus. If you don't believe Jesus, you don't believe Moses. Moses. Biological lineage from Abraham is not what God was talking about when he made promises about Abraham having a family nation. Second point is this promises are what makes God's children. So number one, it's not biology. Number two, promises are what make God's children. Look at verse eight. I told you this is kind of heavy stuff. Live with me. Okay. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, Paul's going to demonstrate now how God's people have always been a belief lineage, not a biological lineage, a belief lineage by showing the presence of promises and the belief that circumvented birthright in some of these things. The Old Testament blessing would follow birthright. So, because God gave the blessing to Abraham, says, through you. And then it gets passed through one of his kids. And then it gets passed through one of his kids. So, there's a passing of this blessing through the birthright. The male child born first would be entitled, would be titled the firstborn, because they were firstborn. Okay? So that's why we have the firstborn child, right? That birthright thing. And particularly it'd be a male in these times. And that one and that one, that firstborn, would receive the blessing and the name and honor would pass through them. It follows through their lineage. He is going to attack that by two examples, kind of two overlooked passages out of the Old Testament. In, chat, in verse 9, first we see the lineage of, of Sarah. Sarah is married to Abraham. Really funny story. If you haven't read Abraham and Sarah in a little while, um, it's a kick. Uh, Dempsey and I were talking about the other day, Office. Because, okay, there's all these highs the and lows. There's this one little point. Sarah's sporting 90. And there's this great concern that she's so smoking hot that everyone's going to kill Abraham to take his 90-year-old wife. Uh, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out all, all what's going on there, but, like, <laughs> it was a big concern that she, Sarah was a looker, um, even in her age. Great skin product or something. Okay, so, so we're going to talk about Sarah here, the wife of Abraham, verse 9, and it says this, For this is what the promise said, promise, not only promise said, About this time next year I will return, God says this, I'll return, and Sarah shall have a son. This is out of Genesis chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. So not only is God communicating a historical example of promise where he's not going, hey, this is just lineage or just birthright. This is a promise. So not only is he examining, uh, showing a promise here, but he's showing a promise that circumvents a natural birthright order. Because at the time that God would return and Sarah would have a son, there's already one kid on the ground. He's 13 years old. His name is Ishmael. He is the born first one. But everyone who's reading this knows actually now the title's been shifted from Ishmael to Isaac. Isaac is now proclaimed the firstborn. And so it's hitting their minds like, oh, that was a promise, and that promise circumvented not only biology, but circumvented birthright. Ishmael is now a teenage son that was the born first one, but now the younger son, Isaac, would be official firstborn, the namesake of the family, carry on God's blessing. The promise of God to Abraham and Sarah did not follow natural biological birthright. Isaac being the son into which God would, Isaac being the son into which God would funnel Abraham's true children through and call his family, that was a promise. Second example he uses is Rebecca. Look at verse 10. Um, Rebecca is the wife now of that son Isaac. Okay? And so he's going to say, second example about how it's actually through promise and not through lineage or birthright is Remember great-grandma Rebecca, Verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, literally the greater will serve the lesser. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I want to read that again, but i want to admit verse 11 verse 11 is explanatory note and i want to just pull it out for a second we'll unfold it in a second but i want to omit verse 11 to read the flow of the argument verse 10 and so not only but also when rebecca the wife of isaac had conceived children by one man our forefather isaac verse 12 she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written jacob i have loved but esau i have hated so esau was the son that was born first. If you remember the story, they're twins, um, Esau and Jacob. Esau is a hairy man. It's, it's in all of our kids' lessons, right? But Esau is the first one. And so, therefore, he is, since he was born first, he is the firstborn. And then there's this whole thing with a bowl of oatmeal happened on halfway through the story, right? Where he's so ravenously hungry that he says, Man, I'll give you my birthright for a bowl of oatmeal. So despised what God had promised, so cared so little for it, that he exchanged all of that for a bowl of not tasty cereal. And in that moment of time, um, what happened was he no longer was the firstborn. Jacob was the firstborn. There was this transfer of firstborn status in that moment. Promised long ahead of time, by God himself, when God said to their mother, hey, when they're born, eventually, the older will be subservient to the younger. Esau was the son that was born first, but Jacob himself became the firstborn, the namesake of the family, and to carry on God's blessing, Esau would be subservient to him. And the extent of this favor, and he makes a point in the last verse, the extent of this favor and non-favor of Jacob over Esau was so powerfully stated that he said in these ways. For Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Whew. Man. I think when I read through this passage the first time, I, I see that so loudly that I can't get over it. Like it catches my attention. I'm like, Whoa. God hated. God hates. God hates. Um, you can just go to blueletterbible.com, search the word hate in whatever your favorite version is, and just take a read. A lot of it's peop- people doing bad hating. Sometimes it's God calling to hate certain things. There's a fair bit of there about what God hates and who God might hate. So hate is not something foreign to God. And when it's done, it's done in perfection and done in holiness. But it so catches my attention that I can't notice everything around it. That word hate, I feel like, is so shiny that it puts a shadow over of, of all the way around here. So I just want to address the word hate for a second. Um, it's actually a quotation out of Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Um, the biblical concept of hate, both Old Testament and New Testament, is a little different than our English one. A little bit it includes it. Our English sense of hate, um, and there's probably really no other use of it than this, is scornful, spiting, despise. Right? Just scornful, spit upon, despise. That's hate. If I say that, um, man, I really, really hate somebody, you're like, that's tough, man. If I said, man, I hate John Eagle, you're like, man, it's, it's, it's rough. And you think, you think that I've got a snarled lip when I say it, like there's an intensity to it. Biblical hate, is more broad than that. It does include that, but it has a, a more broader, lesser uses also. It includes one that means no shared loyalty, a commitment to another so strong that it leaves no shared commitment to the other party. Um, and I think this is this is where Christ is heading. We see this in Christ's teaching, but I think this is the way it's being used in this passage. Because this this argument here is a subservient argument. It's not actually meant to, like, stop the show for us, right? So let me just explain how we see this in Christ's teaching. Christ says in John 12, whoever loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's not asking you to slit your wrists, right? He's not saying, like, despise your your flesh. In Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money not talking about a despise on the the one any longer. And finally, in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm just going to tell you, when Jesus says that, he says a bunch of other things about your father and mother and children and the people around you. and He tells you to love them. So this is not the definitive perspective that Jesus is saying on how you handle the people around you. But he is describing a perspective about how you view God versus how you view everyone else. You are so committed to him that there is nothing holding to another person. It's not like I'm 80% loyal to God and 20% loyal to my wife and maybe 2% loyal to my kids. He goes, no, no, all loyalty comes to me. How's that flesh out? That flesh is out later on in the gospel where Jesus says, because of your love for me, your unabashed love for me, your kids will walk away from you sometimes. Your spouse will walk away from you because you're not sharing your heart with them. Your heart is fully committed to me and that is odious and frustrating to them because you're fully committed to me. I think this is the use in which this passage is referring to this because how it's actually used in the passage. I believe it's the the lesser use of hate, a complete commitment of favor to Jacob with zero obligation and commitment to Esau. So this catches our ear strongly, but we need to make sure it sits in its space in this text. It's not the highlight of the text. The highlight comes just before it. Esau, he references Jacob loved and Esau hated to demonstrate and emphasize that this favor was fully and exclusively granted to one and not to the other. Fully, exclusively granted to one and not to the other. So in showing how the promises of God have always been the pathway to God revealing who his children are, we now see there's three things that don't determine who the children of God are. Number one, biology. Biology does not determine who the children of God are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish person. and It doesn't matter if you're um, the, the blood child of a believer. Biology does not determine who the children of God are. Number two, natural birthright. That does not determine who the children of God are. And third, Morality. Talk about morality in one second. That does not determine who the children of God are. Even how God dealt with Jacob and Isaac demonstrated that God was giving Abraham a family nation that was based upon promises and people believing those promises rather than resting on biological or moral grounds. Our third piece is this. The promises display true power. Go back to verse 11 because verse 11 is an explanation, but verse 11 shows us our emphasis. It's actually just written in the notes there. You'd see it. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order, there we go, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So there's a, there's a statement in there, just when you just do a basic reading, where it says in order that, it's showing what it's pointing to. There's something being pointed to, and the being pointed to is God himself and his purposes of election. So there's a reason behind our salvation, but it's not our biology or genetics, and nor is it our works. It's the proactivity of God. Notice the things that build that case in verse 11. Number one, they weren't born yet. They're not born yet, right? So this promise is telling what's going to happen, where God's favor is going to be, and these people are not in existence yet. And because they're not in existence yet, they have not had a chance to accrue any sense of guilt or merit. That's actually... In the last line of there, right? It says, Because of works, because of him, not because of works. They weren't able to do anything, either good or bad, because they weren't born yet. So God is using this example to say, Listen, it is about promises, It's not about biology, it's not about birthright, and it's not about morality. Instead, it is about God's purpose of election, that it might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why is he saying this here? Because we've seen so far in this book of, of Romans, time and time again, Justification comes from God through Jesus, not through us. What's in us is problem. It's in me, it's in you, it's in every single person. What we have is problem, we don't have solution in us. And the argument in Romans said God has the solution. This is a a total different argument to show again why salvation comes from God and not from us. Not from biology, not from birthright, not from morality. Salvation flows from the mind of God. Even it doesn't flow from foresight. So some people would address some of the issues that will come later on in Romans here saying, well, actually the issue is God gets down at the, the end of the barrel of history and takes a looky-loo through there and sees what everyone decides, how good and bad they aren't, and he picks all the good ones. Um, no, actually, that's the point of this verse. He doesn't do that. Before there's a chance to do good or bad, that God himself, it is pointing out the purpose of election. That is the point of this passage. So God stands, th- here's the crazy thing, obviously. God stands in this passage and says, I have control. I have control. And literally he says, not about who the one who works, end of the verse, the one who calls, the one who summons. Whew. Man, that just like starts to rev up right against our American sense of justice and determinism and all that kind of stuff. And surely there are big problems. And I would say that Paul's emotions at the beginning and the end of this chapter here demonstrate Paul is fully aware of those problems in himself, and, it, and, it, and it's an issue for him. What's the solution to the issue? Not ignoring it, actually, but looking straight into it. To see the things that God says is true and that we need to know true. This passage here really is an amazing passage, 9. 10 and 11 are amazing passage of god himself standing in front of us and demonstrating his greatness over us and sometimes we look at that and say it's not true it's not fair it's not good he addresses those questions for for us as we go through here but at the end of that journey i'm telling you he's not going to give us all the answers to all of our questions he will stand there magnificent magnificently other different trustworthy is where it'll take us in these passages. So as we exit these three, I think there's three things for us to remember from this passage. Number one, like theologically, that the framework of how it works. Did God's word fail because most of Israel is not following him now? Absolutely not. It's never been about a bi- biology issue. It's never been about a biology or a birthright issue. Definitely not a morality issue. It's been something God's been doing consistently, Old Testament and New Testament. There is no salvation in the heart, will, or merit of humans. Even, even the desire for true salvation must be imparted by God into our dead souls. We definitely have onboard desires for self-rescue. I mean, who wants, who wants to get hurt? I mean, we all got that. But we don't want God. Salvation isn't escaping from hurt. Salvation is getting God. That, my friends, we didn't wake up with. That has to be given to us. So salvation, even the desire for true salvation has to come from the Lord himself. Number two, God does not hide in the shadows of a causation. Okay, brothers and sisters, like, um, okay, if you don't know Jesus today, and you very well may not, and you know you don't, or you're watching somewhere in the country and you know you don't, we've hit before in this chapter, and we'll hit after this chapter, God's free extension to you. You don't need to sit there and wonder, like, am I determined or not? That's not, not the question he gives you. He calls you, he says, call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. So if you don't know him, um, uh, you don't need to worry about putting him on trial for what he's saying here. He's just authoritatively staying in front of you and saying, Believe me, trust me, come and kneel down at the foot of my cross, give me your life, trust the work of Jesus for you. If you are a believer, why do you sit here? Why do you listen? Is it because you were smarter than someone next to you? Um, is it because you were dumber and weaker than someone next to you and you just kind of gave into that faith thing? Um, no, the reason we sit now as beloved children of God is because God came after us. God in his wonderful sovereignty chased us down in this century and came to us and brought us the gospel and brought us a heart that would want the gospel. Has brought us his spirit. Has brought us salvation. So all the credit goes to him. So when you're reading this as believers, if you're reading it correctly, you walk back and you're just amazed. Like, God, thank you. Thank you. Um, You didn't cut a good deal. You got did not get a good deal of this. Like, Just thank you for your grace. Thank you for you coming to me. It's a humbling, humbling thing. Uh, I talked to someone this week who was uh, uh, c- kind of accusing me of being uh, arrogant. And maybe I am arrogant. I mean, sure, shoot, yeah. All right. Um, I do wrestle with arrogance. But the core of my heart is this thing. I'm a man of amazement, not of arrogance because I don't believe, I I didn't have salvation in me. God came after me, and at this point in time, I have friends around me that He has not yet come after. And I hope for them, kind of like Paul does at the beginning of this chapter. I hope for them. But as for me, man, I'm just thankful. Like I didn't deserve this. Um, I, I I was reading the news last night, and um, um. Uh, I'll leave this vague, but I read I read about someone who got arrested yesterday, and for whatever reason, um, I felt like. The the crime that that person was arrested for it just broke my heart. The person really did crime. And he, and he really did hurt some people, some businesses. But I know it's woven into my heart, my disposition. That stuff was woven into my heart from birth. My orientation was that way. And um, so I sat there, and I don't know, I felt, I just, I just talked to the Lord, I felt really weird reading the news article, I'm like, Justice needs to happen there, Lord. Um but man, you gave you you gave me justice through mercy. And you prevented me from traveling those roads down that way. Man, I think that's where my roads went. I know that's where my roads went. And um it just made me thankful to the Lord that he was so good to me. And it, and it made me honestly kind of broken hearted for this guy in the news just made me a broken heart for him. I kind of wanted to go visit him in jail. And uh, because God's good to us. I mean, that's the only only reason we stand here is because God came after us. It's a humbling and beautiful thing. And third thing out of this passage is this. How do you look upon the seemingly impossible field of mission? Do you actually see it impossible enough? I think that most of us see it as impossible. But we actually don't see it as impossible enough. See, we look around and say, "Like, ah, oh, my friends, they're too smart, or they're too dumb, they're too desperate, they're too black, they're too white, they're too poor, they're too rich, they're too whatever. They're like they're just too. They're too liberal, they're too conservative. And I just can't get through to them. Yep, you can't get through to them. And so, but 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 really, we're paralyzed by this earthly impossibility. This passage." takes a sledgehammer to that. It's not the impossibility of your friends' wills or minds. It is in the po- it is in the possibility of God. God is a saving God. It is what he has been doing. It is what he still is doing. It is what he's commissioned us as believers to come with him into. Your God is out saving people right now. The impossibility is not the people. The impossibility is this is God who elects this passage, and calls. The question is, where's he doing it today? You can't. He doesn't tell us who he's doing it to or when he's going to do it. So there's like this divine pleasure of like noticing the world around you and going, okay, if the problem actually isn't the stopping point, isn't actually in the power of man, if the stopping point, is really, if the power really belongs to you, Father, let's go. Let me see it. So you are doing and calling work, and just as much as you're doing calling work, you're doing ascending work of me into that. And I know the tools. It's the spirit who indwells me. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have on deployment. And I know that the spirit of God uses the gospel of God to do what only God can do, and the only way God will ever do it. So if we see that and we believe God's power, it is absolutely liberating to our sense of mission. Because we're stopped by too little of an impossibility. We see then the greater impossibility of these things residing in the power of God. And then God tells you, it's in my power and that is what I'm doing. And if you know it's in his power and you know it's what he's doing, unless you want to riot because it's not going to be on your order or to the targets you think are best, um, there's this beautiful thing that him in his wisdom, and in his, his mercy and grace, you can engage with him in that and carry that message of the gospel to people. And what you can do all the way along is do verse one of Paul. Anguish and burden pouring out for the Lord for your spouse that doesn't know Jesus. For your kids, for your neighbors, for your friends. Like, like let it burn on your heart. Ride with joy into the fields of God's harvest and let the souls around you burn on their hearts. Because it does not in the of this chapter and then look at verse, yeah, you don't have to look there. Verse, verse one of chapter 10, same thing. So he goes, this, this is my heart and this is my prayer is for these people. So there's amazing power we understand that the power is actually in God's hands. God has put it before us all today, and this is the emphasis by argument of the text, in order that we might see the truth of verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The the good news of the gospel is it is in God's hands. It is in God's hands. We'll have a bunch of questions, mysteries, we'll be hitting in the next couple of weeks as we go through this passage, but today, that's the emphasis of the text. It's not something to be hidden from. Is it confusing? Does it sound odious to our American ear? Oh, yeah. Um, Who's going to like that one in our natural state, right? But this is truth, and this is now our God portraying to us the way it actually is and the way that it is good. And there's a ton of joy in this as we come in with humility. Remember, we are such amazingly blessed people in God's grace, and we are liberated, and we know that our God saves, and that is what he is doing. He is saving. He is saving, and he's sending us proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness called us out of darkness into marvelous light so father we come to you and we um are helped by deep truths and um sometimes those deep truths are hard to cut up and chew hard to understand the edges of it and sometimes we don't think it's good unless we can understand the edges of it lord but you are true and right and good and so please give us hearts to um contend with what you said, understand it, and believe it, and to give you praise, to rest in gratitude, and to um, take joy in riding out with you into the fields of harvest as you do, but only you do, and no one can stop you. And we praise you for that power. In Christ's name, amen.